You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning again, church. Um, today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out, so, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kind, kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted, lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But, but Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Yet have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth, uh, kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you are, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the This is the word of the Lord. Morning. A very good morning, everyone. Uh, the Lord bless you and your households. So now we uh, begin a four-part sermon series into the book of Ruth, and I am so excited 
Uh, the story of Ruth is just so beautiful, uh, so much so that I would want to encourage you to read the book of Ruth for yourself. Now, in fact, the youth will be doing this uh, after the service later. And I think it's such a short book, they should take uh, not more than perhaps 15 minutes. Now, the reason why this book is so beautiful is because it's so ordinary. Uh, it's so relatable. It's so low stakes, so small picture. In fact, for most of the book, you could wonder to yourself, what would it matter? What would it matter? What would it matter if Naomi starves to death? What's the big deal if Ruth doesn't get married? Who cares if Ruth doesn't have kids? I mean, it's a bit cold-hearted to think like that. But I'm sure at some point in our own lives, all of us have probably asked ourselves the same questions. So what if I do well for my exams? So what if I get this job? So what if I marry this person or that person or I don't get married at all? Why must I make something of my life? Why not just remain as I am? But this is why Ruth is such a beautiful book. Because as we see these two women simply trying to survive without any miracles, uh, no big mission to accomplish, no word from God, nothing like that. When we see them, we learn that our own ordinary lives, they matter. We learn that even in the ordinary, God writes the best stories. We learn that even in our very ordinary struggles, God still has a plan for us and His plan is so good. So each Sunday, I'm going to lead us through a chapter from Ruth. So as we begin this morning with Ruth chapter 1, I want to talk about finding hope in the midst of despair. So here's what we're going to be looking at. Moving from despair to hope. Uh, number one, the wretchedness of despair. Number two, the result of despair. Uh, number three, the remedy to despair. All right, the wretchedness of despair, the result of despair, the remedy to despair. The wretchedness of despair. Now, my first experience of despair, or at least from what I can remember, was when I was around four or five years old. Right? I was with uh, my family at Ikea, and I got lost. I got distracted by some uh, exhibit, and uh, when I finally looked around, I realized my parents were gone. I mean, my parents were supposed to be there, but they weren't there, and there was nothing I could do about it. I was terrified. And so a uh, little four-year-old me stood in the middle of that busy, crowded display section and began to cry tears of despair. So sad. Uh, surprisingly, though, despair is quite uh, a normal part of life. You know, in the years after that in IKEA incident, uh, I faced despair in all kinds of other areas. Studies, romance, parents, national service, faith, finances, sin, purpose in life, all kinds of things. Now, I'm sure you have faced your fair share of despair as well. And that's how the story of Ruth begins. In verse 1, we are given a summary of what was happening at that time. I just want to highlight three details for us. All right, so detail number one, this story was set in the period when judges ruled. Now, who were these judges? At that time, there were no kings. So whenever God's people got into trouble... Uh, God would raise up uh, this random man or random woman to rescue them. And these random people were called judges. These judges were kind of like a short-term interim ruler uh, because there were no kings at that time. Now, detail number two, there was a famine in the land. 
Now, famine meant that the usual harvest of wheat and barley, uh, for some reason, had failed. And so now there was no food in the land. Detail number three, the main character and his family are sojourners in another country. To sojourn means to temporarily migrate from one place to another just for a little while. Now, these three details are not very encouraging. The story doesn't get off to a very good start. Uh, and as we come to verse 2, things are worse than they seem. Let me again point out another three details for us. Firstly, the main character's name is Elimelech. Now, this is not a random piece of information. Elimelech means, my God is king. And that's a really strange name because there was no king, right? This was the time when the judges ruled. But Elimelech's name reminds us that there was supposed to be a king, that that was how things were supposed to be, but the reality was completely different. Secondly, we learn that Elimelech and his family lived uh, in the city of Bethlehem. Now, again, this detail is not random. Bethlehem means house of bread, all right, house of bread. And again, this is a strange name because there was no bread. There was a famine. But Bethlehem's name reminds us that there was supposed to be lots of bread, lots of food uh, in Bethlehem. That was how things were supposed to be. But the reality was completely different. Finally, we are told that this family were Ephrathites. Now, the Ephrathites were the original residents of the city of Bethlehem. You can think of them as like the Orang Laut of Bethlehem, right? They were the aboriginals. And yet again, this is a strange detail because these aboriginal Ephrathites had left Bethlehem and were sojourners in a different country. But they were supposed to be loyal citizens of Bethlehem. That was how things were supposed to be but the reality was completely different. So just from these two verses, we learn how despair arises. Right? Despair arises when reality is completely different from how things should be, and there is nothing you can do about it. There was supposed to be a king, but there was no king. There was supposed to be an abundance of bread, but there was a famine. There was supposed, the family was supposed to be in Bethlehem, but now they were sojourners in Moab. Things were supposed to be a certain way, but reality was completely different. There was an atmosphere of despair surrounding this family. And then as we come to verse 3, this atmosphere quickly becomes a reality. Just moments into the story, the main character, Elimelech, dies. Now, this is not how stories are supposed to go. But what's worse is that Elimelech leaves behind his wife, Naomi, and their two sons to fend for themselves. Their protector, <clears throat> their provider is gone. My God is king, is dead. Despair starts to build. And then it's tragedy upon tragedy. Naomi's sons take Moabite wives. Now, what's so bad about Moabite wives? Let me give you two reasons, all right? Reason number one, Moabite women were regarded as immoral and seductive. The very history of the Moabite race, uh, that, that race began when two daughters 
got their own father drunk and slept with him. Reason number two, Moabite women worshipped other gods. In fact, just decades ago, Moabite women had seduced the men of Israel and led them away from God to worship Baal. Poor Naomi, a single mom. She must have struggled to provide for her boys, to raise them up. But where did she go wrong? Didn't her boys know that these women could lead their hearts away from God? Didn't they know the stories of how detestable and untrustworthy these Moabite women were? So how could they do this? But then what could Naomi do? Her sons were grown up. She had to respect their decision. At least getting married was progress for her boys. And she certainly wanted grandkids. So Naomi was so torn. But the sons got married and before you knew it, 10 long years had now passed for these Ephrathite sojourners. They had become PRs in Moab. And then her sons die. And now Naomi's despair hits new levels. Studies show that when it comes to losing a spouse, women fare much better. Right? They bounce back more quickly as compared to men. But when it comes to losing children, women crumble. Life expectancy for women who have lost their children drops significantly. Guilt and despair sets in. So Naomi must have wondered, was this her fault? Should she have said no to the Moabite wives? Was this God punishing her? And now how will she fend for herself? Now anxiety sets in. How will she, Orpah and Ruth, how will these three women survive in a man's world? And is this the end of the Elimelech family line? Perhaps the shame of facing her husband in the afterlife in this kind of a state kept her from committing suicide. People, this is the wretchedness of despair. And I think many of us have tasted this wretchedness. You might probably relate with Naomi's torment. Maybe it was something you experienced before. Maybe it's something you're experiencing now. Maybe you're a young child who struggles to make friends. Maybe you're a teenager who feels ugly and insignificant and used. Maybe you're a young adult, but you've missed certain expected life goals and you just feel left behind. Maybe you're a father who keeps getting things wrong and you feel like a disappointment to your family. Maybe you're a mother who feels inferior every time you hear about someone else's child. Maybe you're old with no relatives, no mobility, no resources, and you wonder if anyone cares about you. The wretchedness of despair is real, and the book of Ruth acknowledges it. This is a world where despair is normal, but how does despair affect us? How do we end up responding to it? And we find the answers to those questions as we continue into Naomi's story in this second part, the result of despair. Now, after her son's death, Naomi probably took some time to grieve, but not for too long, right? This was her new normal. She has got to accept it. She, she couldn't remain in her grief. She, she has to move forward. So what does she do? She does three things. The first thing she does is in verse 6. She arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab. The first thing she does is to return home. 
Now, the word return appears no less than 11 times from verse 6 till the end of Ruth chapter 1. Returning is a big part of Naomi's response to despair. Now, returning is also a very common coping mechanism, right? When people go through hard times, it is not unusual to see them returning to their childhood homes or returning to their old campuses or even to the churches that they used to attend when they were young kids. But there are many kinds of motivations behind wanting to return. Uh, some people might want to return for the safety and comfort of what's familiar. Others might do so out of guilt. And others still perhaps hoping for a fresh start. Now, any one of these things could have been the reason for Naomi's return. But whatever it was, returning home is the first thing she does. The second thing she does is that she pushes away those closest to her. From verses 8 to 15, uh, we see Naomi trying to convince her daughters-in-law again and again to leave her, and she does this three times. Now, after pushing people away, sorry, again, pushing people away is a very common response to despair, right? There's a desire to be left alone. There's an aversion, perhaps, towards making small talk, having to smile, uh, there's a fear of being uh, judged as a wet blanket and you know, upsetting people with your mood. Uh, there's also frustration that no one really understands what you're going through. But for Naomi, it was a sense of responsibility that made her push the two girls away. She was their mother-in-law, but she wasn't in any position to take care of them. In all three of her conversations with them, she implies again and again that if they stuck with her, they would never be happy. Their best chance at a happy and fulfilled life was if they remained in Moab. Now, at that time, a woman's happiness uh, followed a very strict standard path. Get married, have kids, and especially have a son to carry on the family name. That was mostly it. But if Orpah and Ruth were to follow Naomi, they were highly unlikely to get married in Israel. And if they couldn't get married, they couldn't have kids. To all three women, being unmarried and childless would have been a horrible way to live. And so you can sense the reluctance that Naomi has in bringing these girls with her. She doesn't want to be responsible for ruining their lives and their futures and so she persuades them again and again, sometimes even forcefully, to leave her and to go their own way. So the second thing Naomi does is that she pushes away those closest to her. The third thing she does is found in verses 19 to 21. At this point, she's finally returned home to Bethlehem. And the people come running to see her, but they, you know, because they, they haven't seen her for over 10 years and they're excited to see what has happened to her. But in the midst of that excitement, Naomi lifts up her voice and cries out in lament, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Her name, Naomi, was supposed to mean pleasant. But now there was nothing pleasant about her life. Instead, she rather that people call her Mara, which means bitterness. You know, some of us, you know, uh, get a new name, uh, a baptism name after we get baptized. It's, you know, that name is supposed to reflect our new identity in Jesus. Mara was Naomi's baptism name. 
right? But she went through the baptism of suffering and her identity was in her despair. Now, some people say suffering makes us better people. Suffering humanizes us, makes us more caring, more sensitive, more humble before God. But that's not always true. Sometimes when the suffering is too much, it can dehumanize us. Naomi's suffering hardened her. Her bitter circumstances had made her existence bitter. It had made her very identity bitter. And it had also made her bitter against God. Now, at one point in her life, she had been full. She had had, had everything. But then the Almighty, El Shaddai, the glorious judge, the all-powerful judge of the cosmos, he took away everything. And now she was returning home empty-handed. Now, in the famous story of Job, when he experienced the great suffering, he cried out, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But here in this story, Naomi is crying out, the Lord gave everything, the Lord has taken everything. Life sucks. Leave me alone. You see, the third thing that Naomi did was that she redefined herself through the lens of despair. She redefined herself through the lens of despair. And again, this is a very human response to despair. I mean, we call ourselves gospel-centered and we are a gospel-centered church, but many times when we go through suffering, we easily become despair-centered instead. Who we are, how we relate to others, how we relate to God, how we make our decisions, suddenly everything gets redefined by the despair of our bitter circumstances. But if we look at the three things Naomi does, returning home, pushing away those closest to her, redefining herself through the lens of despair, through all these things, we see that despair has done something in Naomi. It has impacted her. It has changed her. Now, what, what, what was that change? Well, despair had robbed Naomi of her vision. She didn't know where she was going. She had given up on her life. She was pushing away the people who loved her, the people whom she loved. And even her sense of self had been swallowed by the despair she was facing. She didn't even know where she stood with her God. So what can we learn from this? Despair makes us visionless. The result of despair is visionlessness. Despair is powerful. Despair can consume us, empty us out. It can reduce us to something less than human. Despair is a black hole that swallows even our identity. And this is the result of despair. This is how powerfully and quickly despair can eat us up. But how can we reverse the effects of despair? How can we get through despair and still have a vision? This brings us to our final point, the surprising remedy to despair. Now, there is only one way to get through despair. You, know, uh, you can't avoid it. If you avoid it, you land up in denial, which is way worse. The only way is to go through that despair. But how do you get through despair? What is the remedy to despair? Well, the story of Ruth gives us a very surprising answer. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, God has a way of doing things. Uh, he delivers his people with power. 
He is the God of the impossible. And so if the three women needed husbands, God could have very well formed the husbands out of the very dust, like with Adam and Eve. If elderly Naomi needed another son, God could have revived her womb, like with 90-year-old Sarah. If Naomi felt her, her life was too mara, it was too bitter, God could sweeten it in a moment, right? Like what he did with Moses and the bitter waters of Mara in the desert. But God doesn't do anything. Instead, it is Ruth, this lowly, mobile woman who takes action. No matter how much Naomi tries to shake her off, Ruth doggedly clings to her. Even when Orpah leaves, Ruth holds on. And then Ruth makes this awesome declaration to Naomi. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Now, right now, in the, I'm in the midst of a wedding preparation, and I can't help but notice how much this sounds like a wedding vow. Right? Where you go, I will go. What's yours is mine. What's mine is yours. Now, you see, wedding vows brings two people into a marriage covenant. And similarly, uh, Ruth's vow was now bringing her into covenant with Naomi. Now, what is a covenant? I'll, I'll talk more about this next Sunday. But for now, let me just say that a covenant is an agreement that cements a deep relationship between two parties. One more time. Uh, a covenant is an agreement that cements a deep relationship between two parties. But listen to how hardcore Ruth's covenant is. Ruth says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. She's saying that even after Naomi dies, she's not going to go back to Moab. She's going to stay put in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is her home now. For better or for worse, Ruth will be in Bethlehem till her dying day. And on top of that, Ruth invokes a curse upon herself. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth was saying that God will destroy her if she does not fulfill her vow. Now again, remember, by sticking with Naomi, Ruth was walking away from a life of happiness and fulfillment. And what she was doing was that she was entering into Naomi's bitterness and by invoking this curse, she was now burning any remaining connection to her old life in Moab. And what we see from this also is that Ruth's covenant was one-sided. In verse 18, if you look at it, Naomi doesn't respond to Ruth's vow. Naomi doesn't even acknowledge it. There is no thank you. Naomi just remains silent. Ruth's covenant is more hardcore than a marriage covenant. Something stronger than romantic love is driving Ruth. And what was it? The Bible calls it hesed. Hesed means kindness. It means compassion, faithfulness, steadfast love. But above all, it is covenant loyalty. And this is the surprising remedy to despair. You, you see, Hesed is not a miracle. 
Hesed is it doesn't is not an extraordinary thing that God does. It's it's not even immediately effective. No, Hesed is the ordinary, slow acting but effective cure for despair. Now, in her despair, Naomi had become a shell of herself, but Ruth, through her great Hesed, is now going to pour herself into Naomi. Visionless Ruth, sorry, visionless Naomi, would be healed by vision love, Ruth. And the remedy to visionless despair is vision love, despair. Sorry, hesed. Keep getting mixed up. Here's the thing. You and I can't overcome despair on our own. We need help. And it's not just a one-off conversation or a one-time act of love. No, the help we need is someone who would show us unceasing covenant loyalty for all our lives. And right now, there's an atmosphere of despair all around us, right? We are asking, is there a second COVID wave coming? How long can the economy hold up? And as a church, there's this feeling of being stuck. I mean, we do have a routine for Fridays and Sundays, at least for those of us in cell groups, but how about discipleship? How about uh, teaching the Agape Land kids? How about the elderly who struggle with all this online stuff? How about evangelism? How will the church grow? How about missions? How about church planting? We're surrounded by this atmosphere of despair. And I guess that is why having a, a vision is so important. We need to look beyond our present realities. We need to work towards something. But soon enough, this atmosphere of despair is going to become a reality for many of us. Things are going to get out of our control. Reality is going to move further and further away from how things should be. And the wretchedness of despair is going to set in. And then what will happen to our vision? I tell you, our vision will collapse. Just like with Naomi, the result of our despair will be visionlessness. But do you know what will see us through? If we were to go beyond the goals, and if we go beyond the plans, if we go beyond the outcomes, and if we make hesed love our vision instead... I tell you, a vision of Hesed love will see us through even the worst of times. Now, over the past few months, I, I myself have struggled with despair. I despaired because as a pastor, as an elder, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Just as we entered into the circuit breaker, God placed the burden on my heart for our church, for, for how it could be. And I really wanted to help make this vision a reality for Agape. This is the first time I've ever been led to fast and pray for months. And I also tried to create avenues and platforms to encourage others to pray and to get into the Word. But then every Sunday, I would have to smile and say good morning to a camera. I would have to sing and preach to an empty hall. And then came the feedback. Sermon too long, prayer too intense, song choice not good, clothing too dark, and so on. Now, I just, I'm just sharing what I went through, all right? Please continue to share feedback with me. Uh, feedback is one of God's ways where I grow as a pastor and as a believer and also where our church grows as well. So please keep that feedback coming. But what was happening to me at that time was that the reality of the situation was hitting me. I was seeing the gap between my vision and the reality and I felt completely helpless. I felt like I could do nothing. 
And so being the very godly and prayerful man that I am, I took all these feelings of despair and I laid it all on Pastor Kuo Liang. I complained at him for hours and hours. I whined, I moaned, I grumbled, I vented until Pastor Kuo Liang was as miserable as I was. But at one point, he said to me, Pastor Nan, don't forget to love. Don't forget to love. People, don't forget to love. Very soon, you will start hearing about the changes we're making so that our church is better positioned to face this new normal. Some of these changes will excite you. Some of these changes will inconvenience you. And some others of these changes will require you to roll up your sleeves and get to work. But in all of this, remember that the vision is not ultimately about success. The vision is love. We are Agape Baptist Church, after all. If there's one thing we must be known for, it is for our love. So would you be a Ruth? Would you fight the atmosphere of despair with covenant loyalty? Would you look out for those who are despairing? Would your cell groups and your households become spaces where not only stories of victory and, and, and faith are shared and happiness abounds, but also where accounts of grief and hopelessness find new life and sorrows are shared? Would you cling to those in despair rather than trying to fix them quickly? If it comes to it, would you sacrifice your own plans for happiness and fulfillment so that you can be there for a brother or a sister in need, even if they don't appreciate you, even if they push you away? And I believe this is the call that God is giving to us through the book of Ruth this morning. Hesed love must be our vision. But people, being a Ruth is near impossible. The only way we can push on in covenant loyalty is by coming back to Jesus to again and again return to His Hesed love towards us. Jesus is our greater Ruth. He gave up the happiness and fulfillment of heaven to enter into our despair. As God, He was full, but He entered into our famine. He became empty, even to the point of dying on that bitter cross for us. He became Mara for us, so that we could know the pleasant, delightful love of God. But how do we receive Him? We pushed Him away. We pushed Him away because we wanted to save ourselves. But even so, He clung to us. He wept for our lostness. And He redefined Himself around our despair. He became the man of sorrows. And He speaks a better vow than Ruth. He declares, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Although you were not my people, I have made you my people. My God has become your God. And where I died, you also have died. But only so that in my living, you might also live. Even death cannot separate you from me. What Ruth did for Naomi, Jesus has done for all of us. And even today, Jesus extends his covenant loyalty to each and every one of us. The Bible says, Greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for a friend. And oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. What measure of love he has shown us. What covenant loyalty. And if this is the Jesus who has extended such hesed love towards us, 
then surely it will be this Jesus who will extend that same hesed love through us. Do join me and let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg.